Welcome to the Ask Why podcast, a series of conversations exploring the future of learning and the future of work with experts ranging from professional educators to investors, company builders, and individual learners. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can be put in its place? If this is a topic you're interested in, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR. Today's guest is Ed Fidel. Ed and I met quite a while ago through our common connections at Emerge, they're an investor, but we hadn't spoken in a long time. He started out at McKinsey before co-founding School 21, with a purpose to prepare students for success in the 21st century. Today, he is the founder and CEO at the London Interdisciplinary School, which became the first university in the UK since 1960 to be granted its own degree awarding powers from inception. Well, my name's Ed Fido. I'm the chief executive at the London Interdisciplinary School, LIS, is much easier to say. So what's LIS? LIS is a new university. We opened in 2021 with a completely different kind of bachelor's degree, undergraduate degree. So it's a bachelor's of arts and sciences in interdisciplinary problems and methods, which essentially does what it says on the tin. It's an, it focuses rather than on disciplines. The entire degree course is organized around complex problems and the methods you need to tackle those problems. And that's what the degree is all about. So we have undergraduates. We have also launched a master's over the last year and we're growing. We've got lots of future plans, which we can talk about. Before this, I was part of a team that started a school called School 21, which is a free school or charter school, depending on if you're American or not. Free schools are essentially state-funded schools, which the people that set them up have got a lot of freedom around the curriculum and the pedagogy. So School 21 is in Stratford in East London. It now has 12, 1,200 students, and it has a big focus on project-based learning, on oracy, speaking skills, and also on well-being. And before that, I've done various things like I've worked at McKinsey as a consultant, I've been a theatre producer, and I did engineering for my degree in mechanical engineering. Uh, so <laughs> you glossed over that last part, but it's an interesting, eclectic back background there in terms of how you got to yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Thank you very much for taking the time to to talk today. Uh, it's really interesting to be able to talk about some of these topics with you. Been a massive fan of Liz since the starting part with yeah. uh, of course, I was with Emerge or am with Emerge, yeah. obviously from that perspective. So on the sidelines, looking at all of this, and uh, yeah, so wanted to start like I have with many other of these chats, asking you about. One thing you believe to be true that most people in your industry would disagree with? Hmm. Well, I mean, there's a few different things. I think one thing is that although universities are talking a lot about providing programs and courses and learning that is tackling global challenges or complex problems, almost every single one of them is playing lip service to it. They're not actually doing it. And that's because... They've organized knowledge in the wrong way. What I guess another thing I guess that I believe is that 
it's very hard to innovate in education. It's very hard to innovate in something that is 10,000 years old, 20, you know, pick a number like how old education is. It's been here since the beginning. Can you really innovate in something that is so enduring and that has lasted this long? One way to innovate, in my view, is to do it through reorganizing knowledge. We have this pretty lazy way of thinking about knowledge in, in disciplines, which is basically because that's how libraries organize them. So disciplines are only about as old as libraries, actually. They have to figure out ways to store knowledge physically. We don't need to store knowledge physically anymore. We can store it on the internet. But then it had to be stored initially in people's brains and then in books, and then you had to organize the books. And you needed a categorization system, and, and disciplines are a pretty good one. They're a pretty powerful one. But the world doesn't work like that, and young people don't think about knowledge like that now. They think about knowledge as everything, everywhere, interconnected. Then they get into school and they, they kind of, it's organized in these disciplines and then they get into the real world. And again, knowledge is not organized like that. And there are complex problems that we face. And so I think knowledge needs to be reorganized. And that is a very powerful innovation tool in education, which I think is overlooked. That is very interesting. I had never thought about disciplines coming from the need of physical organizations through libraries. What makes you say that? Is there there's actual evidence around disciplines not being around before libraries? Or? I think the, the disciplines are only about, disciplines as we think about them are only about 150 years old. Libraries may predate that quite significantly, I'd yeah. thousands of years. So I think libraries are older than disciplines. Look, I think disciplines are useful and they come more out of the industrial age really and kind of specialization. And of course, it's particularly for young people, they're very helpful. Otherwise, we you just everything is a bit overwhelming and everything's a bit confusing and it's kind of a mush in your brain. And so saying, well, this is a biological thing and now we're going to talk about chemistry. These are very useful things to help the young people organize knowledge and learn. But what happens is they get a little too entrenched and then there's this moment where young people get a bit confused that some of their English is overlapping with their history or even with some of their sciences. And then you sort of, I go into lots of six forms and say, by the way, disciplines aren't actually a thing. They don't actually exist. They're made, we've made them up. They're not, a, they're just a way of organizing. They don't have edges. And that kind of blows their mind a little bit. Yeah. Very interesting. I guess most people would disagree with that. Indeed, most people are so entrenched in this way of thinking that. Most people think at university, you should go and study a discipline and you should go deep into that discipline. That's what most people assume happens at university, and I disagree with that. Okay. Very interesting, and we'll have uh, definitely more opportunity to dive deeper into that a little bit later. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you another question, which is at a personal level, so through your your own life, what do you consider the best learning experience that you have gone through and why? Mm. I think there's two, perhaps two contenders for my best learning experience. One was when I was a, a kid, I was nine, 10 years old. I got a part in this television program, a children's television program. I was then in it for a series of years and it was quite an extraordinary and unusual learning experience in that I was having to, I was being treated as an adult member of this crew, this team of people of about 30, 40 people who were producing this TV show. And they didn't make that many adjustments for the fact that I was nine years old, 10 years old. And so there's a high level of expectation. I was just observing how they were all working and collaborating with each other, how they would respond when there was a problem, let's say rain, or the fact that the dog wasn't doing something it was supposed to be doing, or the talent was acting up. And, and I saw a lot of people management 
it's a very diverse group. TV production crews are actually extraordinarily diverse groups. You might have the director or the producer who is a often from quite a kind of privileged elite, very highly educated, often not always, right through to people who are doing relatively low skill jobs, but they are important members of the team. And they're collaborating together in a very tight-knit small group of people. And that was a really interesting learning experience for me for a range of things. Perhaps the single biggest thing it did for me was debunk the idea that television is something that is mystical and impossible to get into or to do. And because that then made me think maybe there's other things out there that are also not impossible to get into or do. And actually, when you start doing them, they're quite, there's nothing magical about it at all. So I think that's an important, that was an important realization for me. The second thing is the sort of, in, let's think about more traditional learning experiences. I spent, when I first joined McKinsey, age 28, uh, because I hadn't done an MBA, they basically compressed an MBA into three weeks. And so I was flown off to some fancy hotel they owned in the Alps. And they we had this extraordinarily efficiently delivered full first year MBA in just three weeks, which is about 12 hours a day of learning. But it was still pedagogically constructed very well. Uh, they flew in faculty from INSEAD and from Harvard uh, and other business schools to teach just those bits that they were teaching. But they designed, it was a brilliantly designed learning experience, at which I, uh, yeah, at that point, I got started to get really into and excited by pedagogy because it was the best teaching experience I'd experienced, way better than I ex- anything I experienced at university or school. Interesting. Three weeks for a full year of learning. For, yeah, they compressed a full year. Yeah. And so, for example, the person that taught one of the strategy modules at Harvard came in and taught his entire 10 week strategy course in two days. Nice. Wow. That must have been a very interesting experience indeed. Yeah, these boot camps sometimes have an interesting way of condensing this learning. And it'll be interesting to see how much of that can be replicated on a continuous basis. So you talked about the kind of removing the barriers of, of disciplines and how obviously what you're doing with Liz is a lot it's basically centered around entirely in that premise. Can you talk to us a little bit about why that is so important? There's a few different reasons. One is, I think, if you take a step back from an undergraduate perspective, you've got a bunch of undergraduates who are students at school or people that want to do a bachelor's degree. And in this country, in the UK, typically they're encouraged to study one discipline for three years. And that, for many, many students, if you speak to them around the country, isn't really what they want to do. They don't want to stop all English, art, history, physics because they're choosing chemistry for three years. That, for many of them, um, is a really, really, really hard decision to make. So that's the first thing. So I think we're lacking in an offer that is, let's say, broader from a disciplinary perspective, a bit broader. I think the second thing is that what we, what I don't like to see in adults is conversations where they're really uncertain or scared to talk about certain topics or areas. And one obvious one is say people who sort of say, well, I, you know, I don't really do the maths. I don't really do the maths. So someone else does the maths. Right? I don't really do science. I wasn't very good at science. It's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Science doesn't, if we go back to my original conversation about disciplines, they don't exist. So what are you talking about? You don't do science. It's a nonsense idea. And actually what COVID has shown us amongst many things is that a kind of base level understanding and confidence with science is a very useful thing. And for two years, people were having conversations about science even people that are supposedly not very good at science <laughs> so so i think i think saying you you're now an expert in the this discipline over here and everything else is just going to fade in the rearview mirror is unhealthy and i think it's increasingly important that we don't do that 
because increasingly, and I think this is true, organizations are having to deal with these kinds of complex problems of which COVID was one and we know there's many others. Organizations can't ignore them anymore and they're not one discipline problems. They do require at least a cadre of people who can sit around the boardroom or the cabinet office or whatever and say, yeah, we need an anthropologist in the room because they've been thinking about this for 50 years. Stop making it up in first principles like all of that. And can you talk a little bit about how you're trying to counter those effects through the interdisciplinary school? So we're saying at the undergraduate level, we're saying rather than saying you're doing a mechanical, so I did a mechanical engineering degree. So it's sometimes best to describe this in kind of contrast to a traditional degree. The mechanical engineering degree, you go in and you then immediately, the course is divided up into modules, thermodynamics and fluid mechanics and maths and solid mechanics and design. And by the way, these modules are the same modules. I look, they're still the same. I went to Imperial College. They're still doing the same modules. And then in the, so you do one module on fluid mechanics. And then the next year you do sort of fluid mechanics 2, 2.0. And you do solid mechanics 2.0. And you do, so it's not that you're really going deep into engineering. You're kind of doing one module, primer in fluid mechanics. Then you go a bit deeper in fluid mechanics. And then in the third year you might drop fluid mechanics, right? And so what we're saying is rather than all the modules being sort of coherent because they're all mechanical engineering modules, how about we create a different kind of coherence? So what happens is the students will come into our bachelor's degree and actually none of them do fluid mechanics, but they might be doing data science module, but it's a university level data science module. And then the next year they might do data science too. And they might do a philosophy module. They might do a kind of visual representation of data area study, but the coherency is that it's all pointed towards a problem like sustainability or AI and ethics. So in the AI and ethics term, they're doing some philosophy, they're doing some machine learning, as you might imagine. And then they are kind of combining these disciplinary perspectives to think about a common problem. Interesting. And do so does that mean that across across the school you have themes by like for batches? So where you look at these mod you look at these modules through the lens of the whatever is the problem of the time. Yeah, yeah we do. So some of the stuff we teach agnostic of the problem because that's the best way to teach the method. So we have some methods that we want them to leave with. So data science, statistical analysis, mod code, some coding, as well as some qualitative methods like ethnographic research or survey, survey design. So when we first teach those, we'll just teach those the best way to teach them. And then in later problems, later in their degree, they'll be called upon to use those methods as well so that's when now but when we're teaching the problems let's say we're teaching sort of the disciplinary perspectives like philosophy or some anthropological perspectives we'll do that through a problem so the philosopher will be thinking very specifically about teaching some philosophical concepts in relation to inequality or ai and ethics and so on okay now and one of the one of the massive achievements that you've had was the fact that you have degree awarding powers as well mm -hmm. for the school which is something that hasn't happened for a very long time yeah can you talk us through a little bit i imagine there must have been a long story behind that and some yeah <laughs> some i would say a long and probably quite tedious quite, probably quite <laughs> tedious story which i will not regale you with but um, <laughs> um yeah so if you yeah if you can walk us through a little bit one of what was required and maybe maybe the things that surprised you most so what was the hardest thing and why do you think that was so hard Okay, so the getting degree awarding powers was a big challenge, not least because, I mean, I was hoping others would go for it. So there's a legislation, legislative change in 2017, which meant that new providers could go for degree awarding powers right from the start. Previously, you had to have degree awarding, you had to be validated by another institution for seven years, 
before you got your own degree awarding powers. And what that meant was you had very little innovation because people were essentially having to map their provision to another university's provision, right? So by definition, you wouldn't get, certainly they couldn't start in an innovative way. By the way, once you've started in a traditional way, it's very hard to pivot. Right. So, so my view was we had to, I was waiting through 2015, through 2016, 17, I had my eye on the possibility that they were going to create this legislative change. And then we went for it. But part of me was hoping we wouldn't be the first to go through this process because you never really want to be the first doing this stuff through a new bureaucracy. There's pros and cons. So one of the pros of doing it is that none of the bureaucrats actually know how it's supposed to work because they've never done it before. And you can tell them. And this is something I learned through the, because with free schools, with the schools opening School 21 in 2012, I witnessed my co-founder, Peter, who had a lot of experience with government, would go around the civil service telling people how it's supposed to be working. And I, I didn't have the confidence to do that. I was kind of like, it's the Department for Education. We have to do what they say. He said, no, 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 no. They're just people who do not understand because they've never started a school. So we actually do know more about starting a school than them, despite the fact we've never done one either. But we've thought about it more. We've thought about it for longer and we're spending all our time on it. So we should tell them what they should be doing. And so then by the time we got, uh, I got to sort of 2018, 19, 20, and we were going through this process for the university, I had a little bit more of that mindset. But the reality was there was so much about the regulatory framework, which found it very hard to get its head around the idea of a startup university. One example was that at one point in the process, they were saying, can you show us the room where the third year exams will be in and the safe, where the safe is going to be in, that you're going to lock up the exam papers in. Uh, and this is about a year before we, a year before we opened. And I was like, no, uh, we definitely can't show you that. You know, and they worry about a lot of things. You, you haven't got a site yet. And we're really worried you haven't got a site. I'm like, We'll find a site. It's London. You should be worried about whether we have money because <laughs> if we have money, we can find a space to fit a hundred people. That's not a problem. And so, they, but it, I understand it's just very, very hard. For, you know, a university is a place. It's a building, and you don't have a building. So how can you be a university without a building? And so, so there were these sorts of things. But the reality was, it cost us about two million pounds and took two or three years of time. And you have to show you've got a faculty and you've got students interested and you've got a curriculum before they give it to you. So it was a big gamble for us, but we sort of went for it and we were, we were, yeah, we managed to do it. Nice. Yeah. That's uh, definitely sets, sets up uh, lots of new startups who now have the possibility to follow. Hopefully. Yeah. And if you had to do it again, if you could do it again, what would you have done differently in this process of trying to get the degree awarding powers? I, the first thing I should say is that like with most startups, probably you would pause before you do it again, knowing how difficult it was <laughs> because I naively thought it would be a sort of nine month process. And it really was a kind of two years and a little more painful. What would I do differently? Interesting. Uh, I still, so my general philosophy with these things is you wait until you've got the right go, go sort of slow, slow with any starting anything big like this, you go slow, 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 slower than you would like. And then it happens faster than you could kind of and you can almost handle right so the curve people when they're starting stuff assume it's going to be this linear growth and and really you know you've got there's one or two of you just trying to get the thing going and then it goes a bit more like that and i think that's fine and we were pretty aggressive about when we wanted to open we wanted to open in 2020 we failed we opened in 2021 so the easy thing to say would be well i'd plan to open in 2021 but i wouldn't i think i would still plan to open in 2020 because by the way going faster is usually cheaper and you find out you find out a lot of stuff along the way and i think this is a kind of all-up testing it was an all-up testing thing it's like right we're going to try recruitment and faculty and everything the curriculum we just got designing it we're doing it all at the same time and okay we tripped up on the regulation and we had to delay a year because we didn't get through regulation the first time around would i try anything differently yeah i would hire we would probably 
we get advice from some different sources on how we did the regulation, but really that's about it. And so maybe framing it slightly differently, if you had to give one piece of advice to a uh, startup that is thinking about doing this right now, okay, what would be that piece of advice? I have given this advice to three or four people, including Multiverse, actually. Um, so Ewan, Ewan was interested. He's since got career-awarding powers. And it's a little different if you're exactly had an institution going. So we, you know, there's you want technical expert expertise. This is not a time for kind of broad expertise. You need very specific technical expertise about what the regulators are looking for. And there were some people that we found in the end who had really, who would be great at that. So that's one thing I would tell you who advised us. But on the other side... I would say if I have one thing which I'm unusually good at, it's time. It's like timing new projects with the political wins being in your favor. And if you do that, you can actually, they can really help things along for you, the politicians. If they want to see new schools, they want to see new universities. And the Office of Students was a regulator that was set up for to have high quality, innovative new entrants. And we were perceived by them quite early on as a potentially high quality, innovative new entrant. Uh, they really bent quite a lot of things and rules and pushed us through and helped us and i think get your timing right make sure the political wins are still with you and be in a, be innovative and high quality because that's what they need don't it's not, they're not going to be excited about me too in the uk education s- sector yeah okay and moving on to the next question which is uh so Diving in into kind of the interdisciplinary side of things, what would you say to people who would say that not going down the discipline side will lead into a lack of depth mm. and specialized education? And how do you ensure that st- students develop the necessary depth of knowledge as well as the breadth that mm. is required to mm. these problems? Yeah, it's a perfectly reasonable question, which we get all the time. I think there's two answers. One is, we challenge, obviously, as you'd expect, I challenge the premise of the question. I don't think degrees go deep. I did a mechanical engineering degree, and I left not understanding how to integrate all these different modules I did. I couldn't build anything. I didn't understand how anything worked. I could pass a bunch of quite mathematical exams. That's not depth. That's not depth. So you do fluid mechanics one, you do fluid mechanics two. That's not that deep. Where's the depth? So that's the first thing. Now, But then the other way of thinking about this is to reframe the question as rather than depth, we say complexity. And I think complexity and difficulty is something which you should experience at university. You should be pushed intellectually and you should learn a significant amount that you didn't know before. That sounds obvious, but that's not always the case at university, right? So, yeah. And so um, where does the complexity come from? The complexity comes in part through the methods they're learning and the uh, sort of disciplinary perspectives they're taking. But the complexity in another sense comes from the sort of integration of these things. And actually also the complexity comes from thinking about we have uh, organizations are quite, external organizations are quite involved in the degree, bringing us real problems in sustainability, let's say. And then the students have to think, I've got this academic conceptual stuff I've been learning. I've got these quantitative and qualitative methods. And then there's this real problem. And how do I actually, is any of this useful? Or should I, do I just start again and I didn't need any of this? And actually, they are trying, they are really trying to say, right, there's this inequality problem in education. What role does neuroscience play? What role does network science play? What role does political economy play? And they're trying to combine um, these subjects to create new insights. And that is a complicated, hard thing to do, which the second years are already much better at doing than the first years. Our thesis is by the third year, they'll be particularly good at it and i think that one thing is if they weren't getting better at it and that would be one concern but they're going deeper 
on complex problem solving, if that's what you want to call it, or they're going deeper on being able to rifle through a kind of arsenal of different disciplinary perspectives, different places to stand, different methods that they can use to gather data, analyze data, and visualize data, and communicate data. Okay. And how do you think about technology within all of this? Sorry. The technological landscape and both the capabilities as well as how it's changing the skills that are valuable in the first place. Yeah. Okay. So I see. So there's at least three or four different ways to think about this. One is what technology we teach them. One is how it changes how we teach like chat GPT. And another is the technology, the sort of platforms we use to do the teaching. But taking that last one quickly, you know, we're not, we're not a leader in that space. We're not a technology company. We're not going to change how t teaching and learning is done. The challenge for us in the classroom is hybrid. It, almost always someone wants to be at home for some reason and they want to log on. Do you try and adjust for them that no one's solved that yet? I don't think we're going to be the ones to solve it. So that's more about understanding what's the best of what's happening out there in terms of the teaching and learning. But we are, we were, we're children of COVID as an institution. That gives us a huge advantage because I think if you solidified anything pre-COVID, that everything's changed in terms of people's propensity to, to learn online. So I think we're ahead there and we've got a chief product officer, a guy called Matt Walton, who is building a product team here who are working with academics. And so I think that helps us in terms of our in terms of kind of the, the offer. But in terms of how the technology changes what you learn, yeah, we have to embrace it. I don't know the answers. Chat GPT is like changing faster than anyone can keep up with it. All that area of technology, you know much better than I do. And so our academics are fascinated by what the implications are for assessment, for essay setting, for marking, all of that. I think we're in a pretty good place because our assignments are so unusual that it's quite hard. It's certainly been quite hard for students to find existing essays online, but of course, chat changes that yeah. um, so that goes to the next level and i i just think it's um i think it's a good challenge and i think we should embrace it because it's a big part of in the knowledge economy it's a big part of the work that people will be doing so i think we should be setting work at least some of the work we should set students should involve them using it i was going to say if the the entire approach is problem based i'd argue that the people that are most advanced around chat gpt today will be using it in their job to solve problems and so uh, uh, i guess i was i was interested to know if you are already using it but i guess not not yet not not in a meaningful way yet but it's it's being integrated yeah yeah it's a really interesting um interesting time i don't think there's been as much change in much progress in tech since since i learned how to code actually from my perspective <laughs> interesting yeah and how do you think about the possibility of artificial intelligence helping people learn? So not just helping them solve problems, but helping them actually get better at solving problems. So you mean you mean as sort of how AI can help them, help, almost teach them or yeah. help you access knowledge? Well, okay. Yeah, help you learn. So, so yeah. teach in a way, but yeah, help you learn and discover, solve problems in better ways, uh, not as a tool in terms of getting the job done or understanding the particular problem, they're helping you change your approach to the problem in the first place, expand mm -hmm. your, your mind, all of the, the various things. One of, our, one of our arguments is that one of the things that, so far anyway, ChatGPT, of course, is based on all of the knowledge that already currently exists. And to solve these complex problems, we may need to be making logical leaps of imagination, that's an Andy Haldane phrase, that, mm -hmm. that haven't been made yet. And I think we're not yet at the stage, it may happen quickly, where AI is making these logical leaps that no one has ever made before. To my understanding, that's, that's, that's the case. I may be wrong. And so for us, 
having our students being able to move between these schemas of knowledge, move between these disciplines, these different areas, make connections that are unexpected. And they're often being forced to make connections and they're going, theology, you've taught me theology in relation to sustainability and I don't think it's of any use at all. And we go, great, that's fine. There's going to be a certain amount of redundant redundancy, redundant knowledge, that's fine, because maybe at some point further down the line, you'll just make an unexpected connection. So I think there'll be elements of the problem solving as a tool, which we think we still need the human brain tissue to be able to do that. In terms of learning, though, I think, you know, for me, one of the key skills of a teacher is to be able to meet people where they're at, really deeply understand where the young or older person is at and move them to the next stage. And I'm pretty clear that AI is going to be very helpful in that respect. It's already hugely helpful in adaptive learning in many subjects like languages and, and um quantitative stuff will it move to qualitative stuff qualitative subjects almost certainly yeah and how are you thinking about the future of LIS here now so you, you're currently in mm. soon going to get into well in middle of your second year getting mm-hmm. into the third mm-hmm. soon are you thinking about this being a model for something bigger are you going mm. growing degrees what are you thinking about that's the future. We grow here in London for sure, and this will be our base for some time. And our bachelors will be the crucible of the kind of innovation and ideas. And because it's yeah, just because I, I think the the bachelor's degree will and should be the focus of this institution. I think that's at such a formative age. People are committing three years to us, and that's where we should have our main focus. But we've already launched a master's, so our first graduates will be master's students. We're working with the NHS and some other organizations. With the NHS, we're working on some with some of their middle leaders on how to work in a complex organization. We will increasingly work with organizations. In terms of content, I, I want us to create a sort of successor challenger to the MBA in terms of the content of it. So alternative content, not alternative formats or delivery or compressed or anything like that, just fundamentally a different offer for people in their late 20s, early 30s who have a time propensity to pay and they want something to supercharge their career because I think leadership in the modern world is a more intellectual or should be a more intellectually rich endeavor. You people facing much more complex complex problems than before. It's not a single line, you know, a single bottom line kind of um, world we live in anymore. So I think there's, so we want to kind of build something in that space that I think will also help us, um, work more with organizations and so on. So that's the kind of flywheel, but we want to build a, we also think there's a, there's room for us to move internationally, perhaps with satellite sites, because I think that people will learn online, but quite like at least some sort of face-to-face interaction or some kind of ability to meet their learning community. And we find that here with the campus people, it's a big sell that we have a physical place to come, even if people want to do 80% of their learning online for the shorter courses. And I think there's a sort of, there's a moat for us because, and there's a reason why in Europe or beyond we would, it makes sense for us to go out with our offer because interdisciplinarity and ID courses are quite hard to create from scratch. You need a critical mass of faculty to be able to do it. So it's quite hard for people to start these kinds of courses and people aren't doing it in many places. So if we had a sort of offer of physics and history and psychology there'd be almost no point us going into europe because there's plenty of universities doing those but with these courses i think there's a reason to go yeah that makes a lot of sense looking forward to that future (laughs) me too now i have as i said at the end i always wanted to want to ask another question which is basically what is a question that you have today that you wish you had an answer to i i i haven't come with a prepared answer i'm mulling on this one um so I I might slightly answer a slightly different kind of question. So another problem I'm passionate about, I'm passionate about education, obviously, and I'm passionate about trying to 
shake it up a bit at the simplest level, just shake it up a bit. I think it's a bit complacent how these institutions are running at the minute. But the other the other area I'm completely passionate about is housing and particularly in the UK. And this is not just a London problem. It's a national problem, which uh, is is not talked about. And it's not talked about because for the sort of wealthiest 30 or 40%, it's not much of a problem. It's a sort of, they have a moan about how expensive it is. But actually, the uh, the whole face of housing in the last 40 years has changed completely. And um, of how much it costs relative to people's income, it's not talked about. So I suppose I would, my question would be nothing relating to education would be, how do we how do we get people talking about housing and when did it when was it okay for us for governments to get in and not just say we everybody has a right to a decent home that seems to have gone away so it's just a very completely political question but how do we get that up the agenda not the answer it's not the question you're expecting Joshua is it, it was not. <laughs> very very different question indeed <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's the, that's it <laughs> well thank you very much um, and as I said. One of these questions was generated by ChatGPT. Do you have any oh, idea which one it might have been? God. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's no way to see a list, huh? Uh, <laughs> so I think um, I think the one around depth, and that's almost certainly you, the one around depth versus being shallow. Uh, how, maybe what's the role that ChatGPT plays in education or AI, the role that AI plays in education? Did it come up with that one? I love this because actually the question of death versus breath. No way. ChatGPT. Wow. <laughs> there you go. That's the perfect blooper. Oh my God. What am nope, I supposed this, to do? This, We're this, screwed, this, man. We're all screwed. <laughs> Your job's gone because that was one of the best questions. <laughs> exactly. My job is definitely gone. <laughs> You're out of a job. You're out of a job right away. You don't even need to physically exist. No, even, <laughs> even it, 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 it no longer oh, God. position. <laughs> Chat will definitely be a better guest than me. I'm really so scary. It is crazy, yeah, how how good it is. Um but I am excited by what it might bring to market in the next few months as well. Of course, I think it's yeah. gonna be really interesting to see because it took about a month and a half for people to realize that it was so game changing and now you've got in, in the last month and a half, you actually have some companies starting to build on it. And in like two or three months, you're going to start them hitting the market, which is going to be really, really interesting, I think. Mm, mm. Hmm. Well, we'll wait a breath. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thought it was really yeah. good. How did you feel in VR and stuff like that? Yeah. First time First time for me. I'm fascinated by it. I'm sold. This is great. I'm terrified because <laughs> it's so compelling. Oh. That does concern me that people will spend too much time maybe here. <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. I uh, so it's it's amazing how I think it's capturing mannerisms very very effectively. Yeah. So, well, so the, the, not facial expressions, but the mannerisms. But, yeah. Yeah. Just the fact, like the way you move around, and uh, yeah, that it gets captured really quickly. I have the one thing is I have to try keep my head steady because we tried the first two and we realized that by me moving my head around, if you try to then have a, like a a, a a film out oh, of your film, like, basically it. it just goes yeah, all yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But but yeah, the so so I'm a little bit less uh, through it. But the spatial audio is another thing that is is massive. So you actually it it I hear you as if you are right across the table. Is that right? And that is a yeah, so true. in the company. Yeah. We use in the company, so everyone in the in the company has a headset. And okay. for uh, all of the kind of bigger discussion meetings, so maybe like twice a week, yeah, we do them in VR. Wow. Um, yeah. So, so you sort of sit around a table like this and you're 
Yeah, so like you can change the tables and stuff, right? So you can do things like this. Oh, I see. Wow, okay. And and the table grows when you have more people. So it auto- does it himself. Yeah, yeah so okay. basically the whole room in the table grows automatically based on the number of people in the room. Yeah. So, yeah. Ah, very cool. Okay, <laughs> cool. Got to get into this. Thank you. Yeah. Well, hey, do it anyway. Yeah, thank you very much, Ian. Really enjoyed it. And uh, we'll send you over all the stuff before it goes. Yeah, out, nice. Obviously. Thanks. And uh, hope cool. to maybe see you at ASU GSV and otherwise yeah, at various emerge events. Anyway. Yeah, nice. <laughs> all right, Joshua. Cheers, man. See ya. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can we put in its place? I'm your host, Joshua Böhler, CEO at Mindstone, and I hope today's conversation shed light on at least some of the problems we're facing. If you thought today's conversation was interesting, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR.